Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good. What an exciting Sunday to be together, huh? Baptism Sunday. Um, My name is Ryan. I am the lead pastor here. For those of you who are visiting or new with us today, it is so good to be gathered with you on this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now uh, and open up to the book of Philippians. That is what we are in the middle of, our study of Philippians. Over the last few weeks, uh, we have been going after one big thing, and that one big thing that we've been going after is resilient joy. We have been going after joy for the last couple of months. Throughout this letter, we see that Paul, he embodies this real, authentic, resilient joy, and we want what Paul has, right? We want the joy that Paul has, what we have been defining as a supernatural delight in the presence and in the promises and in the people of God. And this is more than mere happiness. It is rooted in something deeper than our circumstances. It is rooted in something deeper than our fluctuating moods. It is resilient. I mean, even though Paul had encountered so much difficulty in his life, I mean, he is writing this letter uh, in prison. He is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul's life is still marked by joy. We see it throughout this letter, and he has been showing us how to get this joy, this supernatural delight in the presence and in the promises and in the people of God. And what we're going to see today in Philippians chapter four is Paul is going to show us how to get this joy even in the midst of conflict, specifically conflict with other people. Now my baseline assumption here this morning is that most of us dislike conflict. Is that correct? I know there are a few freaks out there that enjoy conflict, okay? I, yeah, right? I know, I know you're out there, okay? But most of us, we dislike conflict. Uh, we, 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 if we had a wish, we would wish for a total absence of conflict. But here's the truth about life. Conflict is inevitable, right? Conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable that we are going to have conflict with people that we're in relationship with whether it's our spouse or our friends or our coworkers or our neighbors, we are going to encounter conflict. And sometimes this conflict is going to be over really mundane things, right? Like, like who's gonna take out the trash? And, and, and whose responsibility it is to make dinner tonight or, or at work? Like who, who's gonna be filing the TPS report? That's a thing that's done at work, right? That's a work thing, right? Yeah, okay, awesome. Um, or it might be something major, like, like how we spend our money, or how we raise our children, or, or whether they root for the Seahawks or the Bears, you know, right? That's a little personal. That's my home. That's probably a, a home example for us. But listen, conflict is inevitable. But I want to say this. Listen, conflict in and of itself is not always a bad thing. Did you know that? It's not always a bad thing. In fact, when it's healthy and when it's productive, Relational conflict gives us the opportunity to learn more deeply about others and to grow in relationship and grow closer with those that we are in conflict with. But when conflict is unhealthy, when conflict remains unresolved, it can have devastating consequences on our lives. It can really affect us emotionally and spiritually. It can even affect us physically. In fact, there was a study done recently by Portland State University And it found this, that prolonged and unresolved conflict can severely damage our physical health. 
It can make us more susceptible to infectious diseases, chronic pain, like headaches and back and neck pain. So when you're in conflict with someone and you say, hey, you're, you're a real pain in the neck right now, you, you might mean that literally, okay? Other issues, acne, anxiety disorders, insomnia, hair loss, to name a few. And I have no doubt that there are many in here today that can attest to the, the truth and the reality of this. And all the bald men in the room said amen, right? Amen. It's so true. Most importantly, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be too offensive there. I heard an owl there. Ongoing, listen, ongoing and unresolved conflict, most importantly. Uh, uh, physical stuff aside, ongoing and unresolved conflict can really deeply affect our experience of the joy that God has on offer for us. But here's the often overlooked truth and reality about conflict and joy. Um, while it can certainly negatively impact our experience of joy, um, ex- uh, when conflict is dealt with in a healthy and in a God-honoring way, did you know this? It can actually enhance your experience of joy. Amen. It really can. And you, listen, you ultimately have the, the final say in whether you experience an absence of joy or a deepening of joy amidst conflict. Listen, this is what we're gonna see in our passage today, that my response to conflict can either rob me of or root me deeper into resilient joy. That's what we're gonna see today, church, that my response to conflict can either rob me of or root me deeper into resilient joy. And so if you have your Bibles, let's look at Philippians chapter four, right at the very beginning, verse one, Paul writes this. He writes, so then my dear brothers and sisters, dear friends whom I long to see, my joy and crown, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. And so this verse right here is essentially a hinge point in Paul's letter in Philippians. And so what that means is that that Paul is now shifting, he's transitioning, and he's referencing not only what has come before, but what is coming after as well. But what's most important for us to observe here right now in chapter four is Paul's tone here or as millennial, millennials and Gen Z might say, his, his vibe, okay? And, and notice Paul's tone here. We see this in his words, the way he's talking to the Philippians. Is he angry and terse? And, and is he frustrated? Or is he full of love and warmth and care for the Philippians here? Look at what he says. He calls them his brothers and sisters. He calls them his dear friends whom I long to see. He, he calls them his joy and his crown. And so are we picking up good vibes or bad vibes from Paul right now? Good vibes, we're picking up good vibes from Paul right now. He has this relational warmth and tenderness and care for his church as he's about to address not only what he's come from, but where he's going right now. He calls us to stand firm in the Lord in this way, but what is he about to dress? Well, look at verse two. Look at what Paul is about to dress here. He writes, I appeal to Euodia and to Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. That's the same phrase we saw all the way back in chapter two where Paul is calling us to be like-minded. It is the exact same verb in the Greek. He is appealing to these two women in the Philippian church. He's saying, agree in the Lord, be like-minded. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other coworkers whose names are in the book of 
life. Now listen, these two verses right here might be some of the most overlooked verses in the entire letter to Philippians. In fact, in chapter four especially, we often breeze past these two letters because they just kind of seem to come out of nowhere, don't they? Like at the end of chapter three, Paul is talking about how we are citizens in the kingdom of heaven, and then in chapter four, we're gonna encounter some verses that if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you're really familiar with some of these verses on anxiety and our thought life, and here, all of a sudden, Paul just smack dab in the middle, just plunks these two verses and, and, and says, hey, Euodia, Syntyche, like, be like-minded, come to an agreement upon these things. He's addressing this conflict. Why does he do this? Why does he put this? matter right here in the letter? Is it just a passing thought or is it of more importance? Well, I believe that this conflict right here between Euodia and Syntyche is of the utmost importance for our understanding in chapter four. I think it is central. I think it, in, it, it informs everything we're going to encounter in chapter four. And I hope that for many of us who have read through Philippians, it sheds a whole new light on what Paul is trying to address here with these verses. Now, what do we know about this conflict between these two? Honestly, absolutely nothing. We have no idea what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche. It could have been a variety of things, but here's the thing we do know. For this conflict to have been going on as long as it had been going on, and, and for Paul to have heard about it hundreds of miles all the way in prison and to have processed it and to write about it and to address it and for that letter to get all the way back means that this conflict was festering for a long time. It was going on and on and on. And so Paul wisely addresses it and says, hey, we need to figure this thing out. Because there comes a point in relational conflict, when we have broken relationships, when we're at odds with other people, there comes a point where when it remains unresolved, everyone loses, right? Because of the backbiting, and the bitterness, and the building resentment over time, unresolved conflict has the potential of robbing all of us of resilient joy, the joy that God has on offer for us. And so again, Paul wisely addresses this, and what he's going to do, let me share with you, what he's going to do in the following verses is he's going to present to us what a God-honoring, mature response to conflict is one that alters our posture, one that redirects our perspective, to use those two words that we've been using a lot during this series, so that we would deepen our understanding of this resilient joy. Again, remember, how we respond, okay? What's, what's in our control, how we respond to conflict determines whether we are robbed of or rooted deeper into resilient joy. And so what's the first thing that we are called to do in the face of conflict with our spouse, with our friends, with our coworkers? Well, look at verse four. Look at what Paul writes. He writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Okay, no surprise here. Paul is like rejoice, right? And so the first thing we're called to do in the face of conflict with others is rejoice. Don't resent. Rejoice, don't resent. 
Now here, real quick, um, Paul doesn't provide a connecting word from verse three to verse four, so why would we think that Paul has all of this in mind? Why are these verses without connecting words connected to Paul's conflict that he addresses in verses two and three? Well, if you can remember, all the way back to chapter three, verse one, Paul writes this. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters. Again, he says, rejoice in the Lord. That's the exact same command. He says, rejoice in the Lord to write this again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard. It is a safeguard to you. And so Paul's command for us to choose to rejoice in chapter three was a safeguard for us and the context of that verse was with respect to um, outside disruption in the church. Remember he talked about the dogs and those who were going after the church and Paul's like, put up a safeguard and rejoice. Now he's, now he's calling us to rejoice again. Another safeguard here, but this time not disruption outside the church, but division within the church. Paul calls us to rejoice instead of growing in resentment toward the person that you're in conflict with, would you rejoice? Would you rejoice in the Lord? Because when we're resentful, we're not rejoicing, right? When we're resentful, we're not rejoicing. Listen, feeling resentment toward another person because of conflict, even unfair treatment from that person in the midst of that broken relationship, it's not a given. It might feel more natural, it might feel easier to move toward resentment, but it doesn't mean it's the right response, okay? God calls us to rejoice, to rejoice in him. So let's remove ourselves, let's, let's for a moment depersonalize this conflict situation, let's remove ourselves from it. Um, many of you know that me and my family, we moved here to Washington from West Michigan, okay? And West Michigan in the summertime, let me tell you, it is beautiful. Okay, very similar to here in Washington, but it is sunny, it is warm. We were right on Lake Michigan, so you have these sandy beaches and this beautiful fresh water, and we moved right in the middle of July. It was amazing, but, but West Michigan in the winter? Whole different story, okay? You guys are like, it's so gray here, it's so bad. Listen, have you ever been to West Michigan in the winter? Yes. It is gray, it is snowy. And, and, and let me tell you, this past week, they already got a half foot of snow, right? And so Carrie and I, were looking on Facebook and Instagram at all of our friends' postings and whatnot, and we're looking at it and we're like, oh my gosh, we are so glad that we're not there right now. <laughs> so glad. Our hearts were filling with resentment toward that snow, you know what I mean? We were like, oh, I'm so glad I'm to shovel it and drive in that right now. But our kids overheard that. And they were like, we miss it. We miss it. We wanna go play in the snow. We wanna build snowmen. We wanna go sledding, right? And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Like, go, go, you go back, all right? We're staying. <laughs> Same exact situation, but different responses. Same exact situation, but different responses. Carrie and I see snow, and our hearts are filled with resentment. Our kids see it and they rejoice. <laughs> Something to put, now listen, I'm not saying that conflict is the exact same thing as inclement weather. That when we, that when some people encounter conflict, they grow in resentment and others instantly rejoice. But what I'm saying here is what God's word shows us is that we have a choice in how we respond. 
we have a choice in how we respond. When we encounter conflict with another person, we can either choose to grow in resentment, and again, it's gonna feel more natural, or we can make the more difficult choice by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can rejoice. Not in the conflict itself. What does God's word say we are to rejoice in? In him. We are to rejoice in the Lord. When I'm in conflict, if I'm choosing to rejoice in the Lord, it will be nearly impossible for me to complain and hold a grudge against that person, right? And this is true. This is truly an either-or situation. A natural consequence of truly rejoicing in the Lord about something will lead to an inability to grumble, to complain, to hold a grudge. Listen, if I'm choosing to embrace the good things that God has on offer when it snows and, and, and sledding and making memories with my kids and lighting candles and, and, and the fireplace lit and blankets and all the coziness of that, I don't have the time to complain about how cold it is or shoveling so, snow. Thank God that is a thing of my past, right? <laughs> but I don't have the choice in that moment. And if I'm going to be, um, if I'm going to be able to resolve conflict, if we're gonna be able to resolve conflict or forgive someone, listen, it's going to require that we let go of and release bitterness and resentment toward that person, it demands it. And we let go of that bitterness and resentment by instead choosing to embrace rejoicing in the Lord. And so that's the first step right here. Rejoice, don't resent. And it seems so obvious, right? I mean, that Paul would start right here. It seems like such a blanket statement. But what Paul is trying to say here is that if we don't get this first step right, the, the rest don't matter. The rest just simply don't matter. But we go back to the passage, look at verse five. We see the next thing Paul calls us to. He says, let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. The Lord is returning. Let everyone see your gentleness. And so the next step that we are called to take if we want to experience deep, resilient joy in the face of conflict is this. Radiate gentleness. Radiate gentleness. You see, what Paul is doing here in light of this conflict between these two women uh, in the Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche, is, is he is raising the bar with each thing he's stating about what a godly response, a godly mature response to conflict entails. Because these two women were godly mature women. We see it in the way that he describes them. He says that they have struggled together in the gospel ministry. That's not a negative thing there. They were co-laborers. They were leaders within the church and that their names are in the book of life. These two women are not immature drains on the church at Philippi. They are leaders, they are co-laborers, and Paul is like, you know the standard at which you are supposed to live. Would you live at that standard? And in this instance, the honorable, God-honoring response to conflict is that we would radiate gentleness. And if that's not evident in our lives as we encounter conflict, then we are not mature followers of Jesus like we say we are. The Greek word for gentleness here is this word epiakes. And in other instances, it's translated as mild or forbearing or fair or reasonable or moderate. And in one word study, it defines this word gentle as, as to be truly fair by relaxing overly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law. And I guess if I were to contrast this gentle spirit with anything else, I would contrast it with like a mercilessness or like an uncompassionate spirit. You know, Paul also uses this word in his first letter to Timothy when he's talking about leaders or elders in the church. 
and he writes that they must not be given to drunkenness. And look at this contrast here. He says, they are not to be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Do you see the difference? And so let me just ask this simple question. How would your spouse, how would your coworkers, how would your kids, how would your neighbors describe how you are in conflict? Are you gentle? Are you mild? Are you forbearing? Do you radiate gentleness or are you aggressive? Are you combative? Are you quarrelsome? Are you violent with your words, with your demeanor? People who follow Jesus are called to radiate gentleness in the midst of conflict. Let's keep reading Philippians 4, verse 6. Paul writes this, Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And so the third thing that, that, that Paul calls us to, uh, how to respond in the face of conflict, he calls us to replace worry with prayer. Replace worry with prayer. Uh, now here in verse six, so many of us are familiar with this verse. In fact, if you walked in today, you might have gotten one of those cards uh, where we're trying to memorize scripture and this is on there. And, and we oftentimes disconnect this and we think it's sort of contextless and this is just kind of Paul talking about anxiety in general. And while that can certainly be true, more specifically, again, we see that Paul is listing these commands. He's giving us five different things after he describes this conflict in verses two and three. And so so listen, this call to replace worry with prayer is not just a general thing that we should put into our lives and apply to our lives on the daily basis, but listen, how much more important is it for us to replace worry with prayer in the midst of conflict? You know, anytime things change in life, there's anxiety, worry, isn't there? Like, like when we move, or when we get a new job, or, 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 or when uh, we go to a new school, there are so many different things that can increase worry and can in increase anxiety. How much more do broken relationships, when that rattles the status quo, how much more does that increase our anxiety and increase our worry? Even in situations where one or both of the parties are, are seeking to reconcile and draw near to one another, there is concern, there is worry, there is anxiety over building trust and building rapport and moving back toward one another. Th this sort of situation, broken relationships are fraught with worry and with anxiety. And so Paul's command here to, to not be anxious but to tell our requests to God, they apply to our broken relationships. Here's the caveat though. Our requests are to be offered with what? What does it say? With thanksgiving, with gratitude. Again, remember all the way back to the very first teaching in this lesson, thanksgiving, gratitude, is one of Paul's like secret sauces for essential resilient joy, right? Gratitude is like the great perspective shifter for followers of Jesus Christ. And so instead of worrying about our broken relationship, we are praying about it. And not just praying about it, but we are praying about it while offering gratitude, offering thanksgiving. And do you know what that rules out in our prayers? It rules out complaining. It rules out grumbling. 
It rules out offering our petitions to the Lord and being like, God, would you change that lousy person? (laughs) They're the worst. They're so annoying. They're so frustrating. They never listen to me. And instead, we offer prayers with thanksgiving. God, this is so hard. God, this conflict is so difficult. But God, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful that you're in control. I'm grateful that you care for me. I'm grateful for that person in my life. I'm grateful for how you're using them in my life to form me into your image. God, I'm grateful. When we are full of thanksgiving for the person or the situation, again, it rules out grumbling and complaining and again, acknowledging that God is in control. And look at what God promises to deliver to us when we do this. Look at verse seven. This is a promise from God. He promises this. He says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't let the familiarity of that that verse just wash over your head, okay? That's an incredible promise right here that the natural consequence of praying with thanksgiving by faith day after day in the midst of conflict, God promises to bring his peace that surpasses understanding into your life, into your heart. When you're facing worry, when you're facing anxiety, in the face of that broken relationship, in that conflict, and you say, God, I need you in this. Thank you for this. God promises to show up on the scene and give you peace. He promises it. Church, it is a promise from the Lord. You know, I think about my kids when they were younger, um, and a couple of them still struggle now, but I won't mention their names, to fall asleep right now, right? You have kids, they struggle to fall asleep, and, and when they were younger, it was usually because it was dark in their room, or there was like a monster in their closet, or something like that, and now even to this day, a couple of them still struggle. Usually, it's because their mind is racing because of all the changes, or something at school. It's, it's new kinds of monsters in the closet, right? And so, what do they do? Instead of restlessly turning in bed, and just getting more and more frustrated, and more and more anxious, what do they do? They, they come downstairs and they let us know that they can't fall asleep. And how do we respond as parents? We yell at them and we say, get back up in bed. What are you doing down here right now? Come on. I'm just kidding. We don't do that. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes right? Sometimes. Not, not perfect, right? No, no. Most of the time, most of the time, uh, we ask them what's going on. And we we start to talk it out with them. And we walk back upstairs to their bedroom and we lay down with them. And and listen, at that moment, they're able to fall asleep because we're there with them, because our presence is with them. And in the midst of conflict and broken relationships, when we go to God with those things, when we offer them up through prayer with thanksgiving, listen, God moves toward us. God moves toward us and he promises to be with us and surround us with his perfect peace. He promises to adjust our perspective and adjust our posture in the midst of conflict. And so, when we face conflict, would we replace worry over that conflict with prayer? With prayer. Let's keep going. Verse verse eight now, Paul writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Okay, a fourth thing that Paul calls us to do 
when we face conflict, and that's this. Refine your thoughts. Refine your thoughts. In this single verse, Paul gives us eight different criteria with which we are to refine our thoughts. Eight different things. He says, what are you supposed to think about? You are supposed to think about anything that is true, worthy of respect, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. These, church, listen, are the specific boundaries by which we are to think. And what I love about the way Paul presents this is that he's not simply giving us a checklist of yes and no. He's providing us, listen, with a filter. This is supposed to be a filter for our thoughts. And the reason I love the way he does that is because this filter is timeless. This filter works just as well for us now in 2022 as it did for the Philippians in the first century. But, but let me ask you this, how much easier is it to allow our minds to go to the opposite of this list in the midst of conflict than this list? How much easier? It's, it's so much easier in the midst of conflict to allow our minds to run rampant and move toward, toward thoughts that are impure, that are angry, that are discontent, that are not praiseworthy than to go to what God would want for us in the midst of conflict. And that's thoughts that are pure and true and lovely. I mean, this is why Paul elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians, he says this about our thought life. He writes this, take every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. And so refining your thoughts, listen, in the midst of conflict, while it may seem like a very simple thing, it's not easy. It's hard. It's a battle. It is an absolute battle. I mean, that's why Paul says that we are to take those thoughts that are rebelling and and moving against what God would have for us, and, and, and he's saying, take them captive. Take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. Instead of thinking thoughts of anger and frustration and discontentment, think thoughts that are true and lovely and pure and praiseworthy and excellent. That's what Paul is calling us to. You know, a few years ago, I coached my oldest son's soccer team. Fourth and fifth grade, nine and 10-year-olds, okay? It was a truly sanctifying and refining experience in my life. If you want to grow in Christ-likeness, coach, fourth and fifth grade boys soccer, okay? Um, You get them on the field, first practice, you throw the ball on the field, what's their natural inclination? Go for the ball. ball. They just run to the ball like a herd of cats. How effective is a team where all the players are moving toward the ball? Not effective, not effective at all. They had to be coached, they had to be trained, they had to be refined, right? to know their positions, to know their places, to know that what was more valuable than them running to the ball was to allow the player in that position to go to the ball and for them to run to space. It's like, well, the ball's not over there. Trust me, the ball will get there. And over time, they learned those positions. They learned how to play the game of soccer somehow by God's grace through me. I have no idea, right? They learned how to play and they ended up winning. And and I don't mean to boast, but we made it to the championship game, okay, right? Yeah, thank you for the applause, come on, that's great. We did not win, all right? But we made it to the championship game. Listen, in a similar way, taking your thoughts captive, refining your thoughts, it is a process, okay? 
It's, it's like training a bunch of nine and 10 year old hooligans how to play soccer, right? It's gonna seem like a mess up there at times, especially when you are in the heat of conflict. We are called to refine our thoughts, to think about what is pure, to think about what is lovely, to think about what is excellent. In the face of conflict, this is absolutely essential if we want to root ourselves more deeply in resilient joy rather than allow conflict to rob us of that same joy that's on offer. Refine your thoughts. And so one last thing, let's look at verse nine. Paul writes this. And what you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. What have we learned so far in the face of conflict? We are called to rejoice, not resent. We are called to radiate gentleness. We are called to replace worry with prayer. We're called to refine our thoughts and finally here what we see Paul calling us toward in the face of conflict is we are to remember biblical principles for doing good. Remember biblical principles for doing good. Paul here, he shifts our focus from, from our thought life now to our behaviors, to the way we live, to the way we act. And instead of providing us with a list of do's and don'ts, what Paul simply does is he says, hey, remember what I did? When I was in your presence and I brought you the gospel and I was pastoring you and shepherding you, remember, remember how I acted and what I taught you. Remember what I taught you and what have we learned from Paul in Philippians so far? Well, we've learned to rejoice even when our circumstances are, are terrible. We, we've, we've, we've learned that good is not merely when my life is going well and it's comfortable. We've learned that good is anything that advances the gospel. What else have we learned from Paul so far? We've learned that rather than living for our own needs and our own desires, we are to place others' needs and interests in front of our own. We've learned that, that there is no greater thing in this world than knowing Jesus Christ and anything that prohibits us from getting toward that goal. Listen, it's garbage, it's trash. And we've learned that when we do these things, when we follow this example, when we do right in the eyes of the Lord, we experience real lasting, authentic, resilient joy. Joy that is rooted in something deeper than our circumstances. Joy that is rooted in something in, in more than our moods. Paul is calling us here to look at him. Again, he's calling us to imitate him, to follow him as he follows Jesus. And here in chapter four, we're learning such an important lesson that we can experience joy even in the midst of conflict. We can. And listen, again, conflict is inevitable. In fact, in a room with this many people right now, I have to imagine that there are many of us facing conflict right now. In our marriages, in our friendships, with a sibling, at work right now. I mean, the holidays are right around the corner. Many of us have a Thanksgiving dinner that we're looking at in a week, and we're like, oh my goodness. It is about to be the conflict Super Bowl in my life right now, you know? My in-laws are here, I'm heading to their house. It is going to be awesome. It is going to be peaceful and wonderful, right? No conflict there whatsoever. But listen, for some of us, that might not be the case. For some of us, we might have lingering conflict that we are going to have to readdress or so often ignore in the moment. But God calls us to something better. 
He calls us to respond in a very specific way. Remember, my response to conflict can either rob me of or root me deeper in resilient joy. Again, would we remember what Paul calls us to do? We are called to rejoice, not grumble and complain and resent. Would we not be aggressive and, 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 and um, uh, quarrelsome in, in conflict, but would we radiate gentleness? Would we replace worry with prayer? Instead of dwelling on it and freaking out about the conflict, would we bring it to the Lord with thanksgiving? Would we remember, would we refine our thoughts and would we remember biblical principles for doing good? And here's the best part. What does God promise at the very end as we walk this way? Look at the very end, verse nine, that's right. And my peace will be with you. My peace, God's peace promises to be with us when we respond this way in the midst of conflict. And so let's not allow, church, listen, let's not allow conflict to rob us of joy this week. Instead, would our responses to conflict root us more deeply in to resilient joy? Can we go after that this week? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how timely it is in our lives. God, conflict is inevitable. Each and every one of us, we are going to encounter conflict in our lives, and so many of us, we are going through it right now. But what I love to see in your word is that, God, we do not have to have our joy robbed from conflict, but in fact, you say uh, that, that according to our response, we can actually experience more joy in the midst of conflict. And so God, I pray that we would take what we've learned today from Philippians 4, 1 through 9, from this conflict that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago between these two individuals, Euodia and Syntyche, God. And we understand that your Spirit's timeless principles apply to us today. Would you give us the faith to step out into our lives as we leave this place today, believing, God, that when we respond how you want us to respond, God, we can experience your joy even in the midst of conflict even in the midst of broken relationships. And God, I pray for the person here today who who just feels so hopeless in the face of their conflict. And they're thinking to themselves right now, well, hey, you don't know the conflict that I'm facing. I've tried everything. I've done all of that. And and it's going nowhere. And I, I experience not joy, but the opposite, misery and despair. God, I pray, Lord, that you would, would, especially your spirit, would rest upon them right now and that you would encourage them. God, that you would be near to them. Your word promises that you are near to the brokenhearted. And God, I I don't know of of any greater brokenheartedness than when we experience broken relationships. It's one of the most difficult things we can go through in life, facing hardship and conflict with other people. But your word promises a better way and a better end. And so God, I pray that we would hold on to your word, we would hold fast to what you have shown us today and that we would respond to conflict the way you want us to respond. Would we radiate gentleness? Would we worry about the conflict? Would we bring it to you with prayer and gratitude? And would your peace overwhelm us, God? Father, right now I pray that your peace would overwhelm us in this space today, God. Even now in this moment, Lord. Would we experience your deep, real, resilient joy? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, well now we're turning our attention from... Uh, trying to rejoice in conflict, something that I think we can all agree is really quite difficult, uh, to uh, rejoicing in baptisms. 
which is a lot easier in my opinion. And I'm so excited about this. And we have a few people here today who have uh, decided to make this decision of faith and step in their discipleship and in their journey with Jesus. And if that's you, if you're being baptized today, you can go ahead and make your way to the bathrooms right now to go get changed. Just a, a quick, um, just a reminder for all of us as to what baptism is. Um, at this moment, no one's getting saved, but what's happening here is simply put is an outward expression of an inward reality. Uh, everyone being baptized today has placed their faith and trust in Jesus, and they are committing to follow Jesus throughout the rest of their lives. This is an incredible moment in the lives of the individuals who are being baptized. We see this throughout the New Testament, that when people profess faith in Jesus Christ, they are then baptized. This is what Jesus calls us to as followers of him, that we are called to make disciples and baptize them. And so we are being obedient to the very words of Jesus in this moment. And so this is so exciting. This is such a thing to be celebrated. Um, I'm especially excited today because I'm baptizing my daughter today. And so I have a ton of excitement in my own heart. Yeah. But listen, if you're sitting there now and, and you've never been baptized and now you're like, oh shoot, he's doing it. Um, I am. You can get baptized today still. You can get baptized um, if you're like, man, but no one's here, my family isn't here, they're not here to watch this, um, we're recording it all, you can show them the video later, they will celebrate and rejoice with you afterward, and if you're like, I didn't bring the right clothes, listen, we've got extra clothes for you, uh, you can just make your way to the back there, um, I, I don't see Brian or anyone, but you could follow me back there, we would love to baptize you, talk you through um, what, what is happening here in this moment. But in just a couple songs, we are going to get those folks who are going to get baptized and we're going to bring them up here and baptize them. But until then, how about we go ahead and stand? We're going to sing a couple songs and then we will uh, baptize.